Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs in 1871. We'll be talking to leaders in innovation about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Welcome to Unlocking Innovation. My name is Adam Wisniewski. Today's guest is Ben Shack. Ben is the head of U.S. Digital Partnerships for BMO Harris Bank. In his current role, he's responsible for using partnerships to accelerate U.S. business results and strategic application of technology. He is also a champion for open banking, a subset of open innovation, which promotes greater financial transparency and the use of open APIs. Thank you for being here today, Ben. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a little bit of an overview of your career journey? Sure. So I grew up in consulting. I spent 10 years at Deloitte doing a combination of implementation work and technology strategy work, almost entirely for super regional and regional banks. And I also did a fair amount of post-merger integration work along the way. And uh, my last two years, I was working with BMO Harris Bank here in Chicago on their integration of M&I Bank, which was a big Wisconsin-based bank at the time. And uh, after that work was done, um, the client that I had been working with was elevated into the CIO position for the U.S. and asked if I would join the team. And uh, he caught me at the right time when I was ready to get off the road and was certainly not looking to get back on the road as a, as a person here in Chicago. And so I joined BMO. And I spent uh, five plus, almost six years on the technology side of the house at BMO in a variety of different roles, and then most recently transitioned into this role focused on partnerships. Um, and so kind of moving out of traditional enterprise IT and into more of a business strategy and technology hybrid sort of a role. Fantastic. And what drew you to financial services? You know, it's funny. I did a couple of projects when I first started at Deloitte in the telecom industry, and I thought that I had my career all figured out, and I was going to be, um, we didn't use the term big data then, but I was. now we would. I was going to be a big data guy who practiced in the telecom space mm-hmm. and uh, had a weird couple of circumstances happen and found myself between projects. And a partner that I had done one thing with very, very early on, he called and asked if I wanted to join a banking project. And uh, I said, no, I'm going to do this telecom thing. And he said, well, you don't really have a choice, so come and do this banking thing. (laughs) Um, And I did, and I spent spent some amount of time doing that work. And at first, I was kind of trying to get out of it. And then I got to thinking, geez, what am I, why am I trying to leave this work? Because I realized I really liked the people that I was working with. Uh, I thought I was working with smart and capable people on the client side. I found the industry interesting and there were challenges to be solved. And I said, well, maybe I'll just keep going for a little bit and see what happens. And, uh, and, and that was sort of it. And I've made my career in banking ever since. Fantastic. So you mentioned uh, being involved in, in IT projects at, at BMO, especially um, after you made the transition. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to strategic application of technology at BMO? Yeah, I, I think like most banks, the real guts of the bank at BMO are built on what most people would call legacy technology, you know, mainframe stuff that um, has has changed a little, but maybe not a ton in 20 or 30 years. And uh, legacy technology gets used as a dirty word a lot of times, but it's really not. This stuff does its job, right? It keeps our accounts the way our accounts are supposed to be kept, and it runs, and it's reliable. Um, 
And so a big part of strategic application of technology at BMO, and this is really where our IT team focuses, is, is on keeping that as modern and healthy as can be, but it can only go so far. Right. So the next big piece of strategic technology is building on top of that infrastructure and around that infrastructure in ways that help us deliver more innovative capabilities for our customers, better experiences for our customers, and, and better uses um, better uses of technology for the bank as well. So examples might be, you know, bringing all of the um, data from those core legacy systems into one data environment so that we can do, to use the earlier term, big data stuff. Um, other examples might be building layers and wraparounds on top of that legacy technology that allow us to consume and provide APIs um, to be able to do you know more innovative things that way. Uh, and then finally, kind of on top of those layers are really the digital experiences that we try to deliver for our customers, either through our own properties, online banking, mobile banking, what have you, or through partnering with others and you know creating connections between our infrastructure and uh, and the infrastructure of others. Absolutely, and it, I, I can only imagine you know because financial services is so regulated that there's some challenges with that. I'm sure that come with 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 um, data and thinking through those those scenarios there there are challenges um i I think the biggest challenge actually is in times of a lot of regulatory change there's only so much that we can do and so i think the biggest challenge is when things are really changing fast from a regulatory perspective it can almost crowd out more innovative work uh, or work that might be higher value stuff that we're interested in, either for our shareholders or our customers, or hopefully both. And so it just takes focus away from being able to do those things. Um, more recently, the the pace of regulatory change has kind of actually relaxed a little bit, and that's freed us up and other banks as well to focus a little bit more on um, on innovation and, and new capabilities. So speaking of innovation, Ben, you've been a big champion of open banking. For the listeners that aren't as familiar with that term, can you describe what that is? Yeah. So open banking starts with a principle, and, and the principle is the notion that a person's banking data really belongs to them, and they should have the ability to grant access to that data to whomever they might want to. Um, whether that is strictly for informational purposes or transactional purposes. So that's sort of the root idea of open banking is this idea that the customer owns that data and they should be able to do what they want to with it to an extent. Um, The way that that notion is kind of taking root in different places is a little bit different. So in the UK, especially in the EU as well, um, there's been regulation that essentially reinforces that idea about customer data and forces banks and others to provide access to data under certain conditions for third parties where that's what the customer has asked them to do. Uh, and so um, the the extent of that is different in different places. Here in the U.S., it's a little bit more a situation where the market's going to decide what open banking is going to mean for us. But the the basic idea is if you think about 
you know, if you think about situations where maybe you're trying to sign up for a service or you're trying to get a loan from somebody who's not your bank, uh, or you're investing money with somebody who's not your original bank, you know, maybe right now you are uh, providing access to your username and password. You know, you're signing into your bank website through some other experience. That's sort of like a halfway point between open banking and where I think things are going. So you're getting access to your data, but you're doing it in a really clunky way. Um, I think when we're living in a in a real open banking land or something that looks more like open banking here, that'll be much more seamless, um, and that'll be something you know not to go too far into the tech, but it'll be much more API driven, where we'll have standards that say this is how we share data with one another, um, this is how we provide access to a customer data with their permission in the way that's secure and scalable and repeatable for others, um, and uh, the the upshot will be that. You know, there will be other participants in the customer financial life beyond just the customer and their bank. Um, and so, you know, other examples might be kind of personal financial management tools. So if you think about something like a Mint or something similar, in an open banking world, they're going to have access to data in a much cleaner, more powerful way. And, um, you know, and we could be in a position where, you know, they're able to do a lot more interesting things. Um, very similar for somebody like like Intuit or QuickBooks on the small business side. Think about if they have really easily scalable, repeatable access to customer data with the customer's permission. Um, they can they can deliver experiences that are probably much more powerful for for customers that way as well. I love that. And, and Mint is such a great example for people to kind of draw from. Uh, you know, when Mint first came out, I remember. It was such a great service, but I also remember there was quite a bit of manual entry you'd have to do yeah. to, to to link the categories with the tags with all the different expenses that you had within your account. Yep. And that's pretty laborious for the average consumer. And then if you have to go change your password on your banking website, then uh, maybe you have to go try to update it in a bunch of other places to make sure all your stuff still works, right, right? and all of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So an ideal world <clears throat> with an open banking scenario you'd have much more transparency with not just the data itself, but the transaction um, piece and the ability to transact with, with both types of accounts, but then also um, much more structured data related to the, the categories and how people think through yeah. the transactions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what we're seeing kind of around the world is starting with data access for, call it informational inquiry aggregation purposes, and then the transactional piece starting to kind of follow as a second step. So it's one thing to say, uh, I'm going to give permission for Mint or whomever to see my data, access my data, see what's there, and tell me something about it. And then it's kind of another step to say, I'm going to let them transact on my behalf and move my money around or make payments or whatever it is. Uh, and so that's sort of a spectrum. And in some parts of the world, they're already you know, well down that transaction spectrum. Other places, I don't know if we'll get that far. What do you think the biggest implication is for open banking compared to traditional banking in terms of benefits for the consumer? Um, it's it's hard to predict a little bit. If you think about traditional banking, first of all, there's sort of that clunkiness in some, some of your digital experiences. So the one thing is that will go away. Um, the bigger thing is, in most cases today, your relationship with your bank is kind of a two-party affair, right? There's you, there's your bank, there, it's your money, um, and and that's mostly it. I think as, as we get in a more and more and more open 
state, there will be more access for others to be part of that relationship and part of experiences. And it's actually hard to say because what will happen is, and this is linking back to the open innovation concept, as more people have access to the data, as more people have uh, the ability to transact, I think they're going to start inventing experiences that we can't necessarily or don't necessarily envision today. And that's where it makes it not only really interesting but also really hard to predict is um, who knows what people are going to come up with once the field is kind of open. Uh, to more players. And it sounds like it's going to require a lot of kind of facilitation of partnerships. Yeah, and, and that's kind of the link to a lot of what we're doing with partnerships at BMO. And, and what I spend my time on is um, some of what I just said is kind of hypothesis, right, about how I think things are going to play out. But there's some things that we know are true. Uh, one of those things is we're going to have to understand at a technical level how to build APIs, how to consume APIs, how to securely transfer data and share data with other parties. Um, The technology piece, we're going to have to figure that out, almost no matter what the regulation is or exactly the shape that the market takes with this. Um, We know we're going to have to do that. We know that we're going to have to figure out how to have rules and standards and governance for how all this stuff works. Um, We're going to have to know how to make it secure. We're going to have to know uh, how to think about, you know, sharing customers with other parties and not just having that sort of two-way street that we have today. So these are all things that we know are going to be elements of the open banking world. So why not learn how to do that stuff today? And so um, it could be that, as far as we ever get with this whole open banking concept in the U.S., could be we just do lots and lots of kind of bilateral agreements between banks and third parties, um, you know, for the benefit of customers. That might not be that different than what we could do today. But we know that a lot of the tools and a lot of the skills that we're going to need, we're going to need them in an open banking world. So why not develop those now? Absolutely. So your title is Head of U.S. Digital Partnerships. And I'm curious how you view partnerships and how you approach them, specifically with startups. I know a lot of uh, the listeners are thinking about ways they can innovate at their corporation, and and some of that revolves around how do you create an ecosystem of innovation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it includes larger vendors. Sometimes it includes uh, um, looking outside at at startups. How do you view partnerships as a whole? Yeah, so first of all, I like the context that you said, which is that partnerships are part of a broader innovation strategy for the bank and and I think for many others as well. So we're certainly doing things to try to foster more internal innovation as well. But we do look at the partnership route as one way to um, think about outside-in innovation. And a lot of times that does mean that we work with younger firms than we might traditionally work with uh, as a bank. And so there's a bunch of reasons to do that. One of them is, you know, we do find that in many cases, startups are doing things that are more innovative because they're less encumbered um, by their legacy, as good as that legacy may be. You know, they're starting from scratch with the best tools and, uh, and the best data and modern techniques, and there's a lot that we can kind of learn from that. Um, and, you know, we also uh, think that in many cases there are startups that are doing innovative things that um, are going to 
help us engage with customers in ways that we can't or with customers that, you know, we might not otherwise see. Um, so a, an example might be, you know, we're working with Autogravity, which is a relatively young company out of California that is trying to kind of transform uh, how customers buy and get financing for cars. Um, you know, on our own, I, I we could we could build the BMO car buying app. Uh, but these guys eat, breathe, and sleep, you know, shopping for cars. Um, and, uh, and there's other lenders that participate with them as well. And we actually like that as also because they're creating a, a platform where we hope that we'll be able to build scale on both sides of the platform and reach customers through that, that we otherwise wouldn't be able to reach and, uh, and also deliver an experience that we think customers are really going to like. And so, you know, sometimes you have to, um, meet the customers where they are. And in, in some cases, especially in today's world, they're working with startups. And so that um, is yet another reason to kind of partner and, and look afield for innovation that way. And for the listeners who are interested in, in adopting a similar approach, how should they think about that? Is it is it a scenario where you say, we want to get into more of the auto industry market first, or do you look at a breadth of startups and then start picking the the ones that feel like they're the best fit out of the, the larger crowd. Yeah, there's um this this partner game is tough because you're really trying to thread a needle and get a number of things to all line up at the same time. So in order to make it work, you have to have the right economic opportunity, right? Where the where the strategy and the economics make sense for the partner for the corporation, whether that's a bank or somebody else, um, and of course it's got to it's got to have value for a consumer as well. Otherwise, that opportunity is not going to be there. So you have to find the right economic opportunity, uh, and then you have to find the right partner, which means somebody that wants to work with you and is what we would call enterprise ready. And that's one of the big things is um, whether you are a big bank or a big traditional corporation, you've got regulations to think about, as you mentioned, you've got privacy to think about, you've got, um, you know, customer privacy to think about and information security. There's a lot of stuff that it takes for a company to be ready to do business with a, with a big company and only so many are. So you have to find the right partner who's doing the right thing and you have to find somebody who's enterprise ready as well. And then you've got to have the internal capabilities, whether it is, um, you know the IT assets, the the right strategy, the right contracting mechanisms. You've got to have all the right internal stuff so that you can actually make it happen too. So trying to line up all of those things is is actually really hard. <laughs> I can imagine. So to you know to kind of bring it back to like what would you do or what's the advice? You know I would say a couple of things. First is to remember that whether it's partnering or even some other sort of innovation, like it's got to be in the service of the business strategy. It's got to be a, a way that you go about executing on the business's strategy and goals, because otherwise you get into sort of innovation for innovation's sake, which um, can occasionally have good outcomes, but I think by and large is, is not going to be a super sustainable model. Uh, so that would be one thing. 
And then the other thing I would say is if you do if you do want to go down the partner route and you've decided that in some cases is going to be the right way to execute on somebody's strategy, um, maybe this is self-serving to say, but I, I think you've got to make it somebody's job. Uh, and that's that's the kind of job that I have right now. But the, the ecosystem out there, especially in startup land, it changes so fast. It's a lot for somebody to keep track of off the side of their desk, first of all. Um, and second of all, most of our processes and our constructs and our culture, most of those things are not wired for working with a startup. And so it takes some finesse and it takes some muscle and it takes um, some grit to actually make those things happen. Uh, and that's, I think, a hard thing for somebody to do off the side of their desk as well. Right. It's interesting you say that because it's, it's, it's never been easier for startups to work with large corporations but it's still challenging, right? I think, you know, I was mentioning to someone the other day that I think five to seven years ago, it was almost unheard of that, you know, a, a big corporation was working with even multiple startups at the same time. It just didn't yeah. seem like it was a good fit. And there was really no onboarding process for dealing with companies of that size. And um, so it's it's interesting that uh, that we're moving towards that, but there's still, still some hurdles that uh, – that companies have to overcome for sure. So I'm, I'm curious, we talked about technology and we also talked uh, about banking. What technologies are you most excited about that you feel are going to have a, a pretty strong effect on the banking industry? Yeah. I don't know if there's any one necessarily, but I do like situations in, in banking and financial services now where, People are bundling capabilities together to create new and better outcomes for consumers. And I think one of my favorite ones is that companies are increasingly pulling together machine learning capability, big data capabilities, and data sharing through APIs to be able to lend money to customers that otherwise may not have a big credit history or... Um, kind of an established borrowing history and they're able to extend credit and get people kind of on the ladder in ways that we couldn't before. Um, so saying a little bit more about that, it, w- it was the case not very long ago when if you didn't have a credit score, you couldn't necessarily get credit. And it's one of those age-old conundrums, kind of like experience uh, in the workplace where you need credit to get credit. Um, what we're starting to see now is people who are saying, look, there's a lot of other things uh, that can predict whether you're a creditworthy person, whether it is um, your education or your employment or your um, payment history for your rent or your utility bill or your cell phone bill or your internet bill or whatever it is, those things are also good predictors of um, whether or not you're creditworthy. Why shouldn't we be able to use those sorts of data points to decide whether to lend to somebody? Um, and there's people out there, especially in the startup community, that are doing just that, and um, and they're applying all sorts of technologies, most of which are relatively um, relatively new and emerging, to be able to do that. And I think that kind of thing is really exciting. When you talk about technology shifts and major technology shifts, are there any specific shifts that you're seeing in the marketplace or that 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 BMO is preparing for and thinking about? Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a um, technology shift or a or a market shift, but if you kind of go back to what we talked about earlier with open banking, 
the threat that comes there is that there will be, I think, more and more new entrants into the market. And it's hard to predict exactly what sorts of experiences they're going to deliver. Uh, but it's it's also um, quite possible that they will start to own pieces of customer relationships that we that we own exclusively today, and so you know that's um, that's an eye opening thing to think about uh, and a potentially big disruption to the industry. And I and I think most people would say that um, banking is probably one of the last big legacy industries that hasn't been majorly shaken up yet in the way that a lot of others have. And and this could be it, right? That could be the way that it happens. So the question is, what are we doing? You know, one is, like we talked about, kind of figuring out how this partner stuff works, figuring out how to live in that world in a way that works for us and that um, also works for our customers. Because we think if we're part of a um, part of good solutions for our customers, it's going to work out for us. And the other thing that we're doing as well is we're continuing to innovate with our own experiences that we deliver for our customers. Uh, so we are, we've just overhauled um, our entire online and mobile banking, and there's a lot more to come there. Uh, and so we're, we're uh, also kind of pivoting the way that we go about delivering those solutions, getting more agile and more nimble, um, and kind of preparing ourselves to compete in an environment where customers have a lot of choices about not just who they bank with, but how they engage with that bank and whose experiences they want to have, um, whose experiences they want to be part of. And so we are, uh, we're, we're getting ourselves better at delivering really great experiences ourselves too. Fantastic. So I'm curious, there's certainly companies that, that you compete with in the FinTech space and banking outside of, financial services though what companies do you most admire specifically around innovation Mm. um well i mean so i'm a you know i'm a human living in 2019 so google apple amazon they're certainly on the list but um they're they're probably i don't think i have anything especially interesting to say about them um so you know if i think a little bit closer to home the companies that i admire are those who identify a problem and find a way to solve it, especially uh, those that find inefficiencies in a market or you know customers or companies that aren't being served well and figure out how to solve that in a way that creates opportunity for everybody, economic opportunity. Um, and actually, one of my favorite examples just as a consumer might be like a Grubhub, actually, who, you know, they and others identified this disconnect between small businesses, restaurants that only have so much kind of marketing power and ability to deliver food. And there's this disconnect between them and people like me that don't want to get off their couch on Friday night when it's zero degrees out. Uh, and they said, you know what, there's there's opportunity there that not only um, allows for Grubhub to do well, but does something good for consumers that we're happy to pay for uh, and does something for you know their, their small business customers as well. Um, and then they've, you know, not only that, they've created a platform where uh, they're able to do some good now they're with their partnership with No Kid Hungry, which I think is fantastic. Um, so they're, uh, they're an example of somebody who's kind of figured out something that just needs to get fixed um, and fixed it in a way that's actually created more opportunity for everybody. So last question of the day, most important, what's the one app on your phone that you can't live without? 
um, easy. That that would be BMO Digital Banking. <laughs> no, um, it it is quite good, but I, no, I don't think I can make that my answer. Um, all right, I will give the completely unprofessional but true answer. So I am a a full fledged unabashed beer nerd who is quite enjoying the craft beer trend. Uh, so I have an app on my phone called Untapped, which um, helps me track my beers and share them with my other beer nerd friends. Um, <laughs> And that would be a whole other podcast, which uh, which I'd be happy to do. But um, but yeah, that that might be one other one that gets an embarrassing amount of use on my phone. We might, we might have to do that the unlocking craft beer uh, <laughs> podcast. So it was absolutely a pleasure to have you on, and thank you for taking time out of your schedule. If there's um, uh, a place that uh, listeners can follow you online, um, uh, whether it's uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, so LinkedIn was, it would kind of be the, the channel of choice for me these days. Yes. Fantastic. Well, thanks again to Ben Shack. We, uh, we had a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for having me. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.